You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Friday, October 16, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, with the day's stories, Jack Farley. Welcome, Jack. Thanks, Ash. Great to be here, as always. How are you? I'm doing well. So what are the facts, Jack? Well, uh, Ash, today I want to focus on a trend within distressed fixed income. It's called priming. You may have heard of it. It's basically when a cash-strapped company takes on new financing from a lender who essentially maneuvers themselves into the top of the capital stack. You know, Normally, they would be junior to the old bondholders uh, of that company, and they'd have to get in line and wait for repayment. But when a lender primes uh, other lenders out of a deal, they basically cut in line in front of uh, those other creditors. Yeah, and this is coming uh, on the heels of this uh, great interview that Eric Shasker did on Bloomberg with Howard Marks, where he talked about this. And I thought it was uh, one of the most compelling uh, pieces that I've seen on precisely that topic. And he was discussing Oak Tree's role uh, in these types of deals. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think they were talking about the Trimark deal, which uh, you know, a beleaguered restaurant supplier uh, company. And that's exactly what Oak Tree did. They went ahead of other lenders in the repayment pecking order. And they also took away some of the other protections that lenders had. And, and this is significant. You know, we've seen this before just in this year with uh, board riders as well as uh, Sertra Simmons, a, a mattress maker. Oak Tree typically doesn't do this. In the distressed debt world, there are a lot of uh, players who are known as swashbucklers, players who are known to do this and cut in front of a line. But Oak Tree really has a pristine reputation. Um, so for them to do this, it's really taking a shot across the bow and saying, hey, we will uh, defend our interests and the interests of our shareholders and investors uh, at all costs. Yeah, you know, two things struck me about this. The first is that it all starts with the Fed. We've been in this incredibly low rate environment for an extended period of time. Everyone is chasing after yield, and this shifts the balance in favor of the issuers. It allows them to effectively strip out some of the restrictive covenants from their loan agreements. They get to issue these cov light loans. Uh, and then the people who are purchasing these this debt, effectively the creditors are then competing with each other for yield. And it almost feels like a race to the bottom. Absolutely, Ash. And that's exactly what happened. You know, there was a report from Covenant Review that found that 94% of all first lien syndicated leveraged loans uh, are, are vulnerable to priming transactions. So that it's right. exactly as you say, uh, the hunt for yield has resulted in lower, uh, lower restrictions and uh, less restrictive covenants. And they are, they're vulnerable to these apex predators in the distressed credit world. And that, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, that's exactly right. 
And talking of predation, I guess the big headline on this, and maybe unfairly so, uh, was that when uh, Marx was asked if it was fratricide, he said, no, it's not fratricide. We're not brothers. We're referring to uh, the other creditors who they were competing against to get paid. But look, that's really not a terribly controversial assertion. Maybe it's an amusing headline uh, for people who enjoy following finance blogs. But the reality is that uh, Oak Tree's obligation, uh, as all of the other shops who are creditors of these companies, is uh, the fiduciary obligation that they have uh, to their own clients. Uh, and as a consequence of that, we shouldn't be surprised uh, about the fact that they are trying to uh, find for themselves uh, the most lucrative uh, aspect of the capital stack to participate in. You know, this exists in this very interesting space, Jack, uh, which the union of monetary policy uh, that's caused the low rate environment and the competition, uh, the very sophisticated analytics on the workouts on these deals on the finance side, and also incredibly intricate legal work that goes into these uh, negotiations and potential court battles when they go sour. You know, I'm not sure that I understand the difference between traditional debtor in possession financing, which allows companies to issue new debt uh, and to reorganize uh, under, under Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection so that they can renegotiate inefficient contracts, swap debt for equity. This is an incredibly complicated space. It makes me realize that we really need to get someone on real vision who's an expert in this so they can really unpack the nuances of how all of this functions in practice. Absolutely, Ash. Um, I, too, feel that you know, there's just so much here uh, to dig into the rabbit hole. We really do need an expert uh, on, on the legal aspect of this. But just, uh, just to close out what you were saying before about the macro picture and, and how the Fed's uh, low rate is pushing down prospective returns for all asset classes. That's exactly what Howard Marks said uh, in his memo, which came out a few days ago. Uh, and he also said that prospective returns, as he looks forward, are not just the lowest that in his lifetime, but perhaps the lowest in history. And that is why you have this reach for yield and that is resulting uh, in what we're seeing. And down the rabbit hole we go. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> Jack Farley, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Asha. I hope you have a great weekend. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Jack. Welcome back, Ed. Yeah, uh, you know, good that you call him Jack. Uh, people are calling him Hollywood uh, these days. I don't know if you know that, but uh, Jack Hollywood Farley is his name. And let me tell you why, by the way, uh, he put up a good piece. He and Nick, just to let you know, on the exchange uh, where they were breaking down what uh, Richard Vague and Joe Walker were talking about in terms of what all financial crises have in common. If you haven't seen that, Ash, check it out. Uh, Nick refers to Jack multiple times, I might add, as uh, Hollywood. And so that's a name that I believe is going to stick. Fantastic. So, Ed, what are you looking at today? Yeah, uh, I, I wrote a piece at Credit Write Downs uh, because uh, David Rosenberg, he came out this morning with something that I thought was really interesting. I also saw something from Jens uh, Nordvik, who's an economist, former Goldman guy. He's at Exante. He uh, was talking about the COVID crisis. You know, put those two together and with the retail sales numbers and the industrial production numbers, and we have a good sort of understanding of what the macro looks like for today, that's gonna be driving markets for a little while. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, it seems as though the uh, retail sales number is getting all the buzz today, but I was looking at the industrial production number. What was your thoughts on retail sales? 
Yeah, so my thinking is, uh, I'm thinking about um, uh, production versus uh, consumption. And ultimately, right. you know, I think production, you can massage production based upon uh, inventory drawdowns uh, or a lack of inventory drawdowns or whatever it might be. But uh, the rubber hits the road with consumption. And so retail sales, uh, I'm much more interested from a longer term perspective with what's going on there than I am with production. So if on a month to month basis, industrial production goes down, I know they could be made up as long as the consumption patterns remain the same. Well, the ultimate driver of production is consumption. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I look at consumption as the thing that you really need to pay attention to and that production can only stay elevated or remain low uh, as a result of elevated or low consumption relative to what you would expect. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, the number was off the charts good in terms of uh, the retail sales number, whereas the number for industrial production was bad, but it wasn't terrible. Uh, uh, So... It's one month's data. We'll have to just take a look and see. I saw Goldman was out with a note saying that some of this was uh, pent up demand from August in terms of back to school sales. Uh, And so we have to take a look, see as to whether or not this number follows through. But at a minimum, just uh, there's there's no pullback uh, of the consumer in a month when we had already had a roll off of uh, the pandemic unemployment assistance. Yeah. So I'll add the dark uh, silver, uh, the dark cloud around your silver lining here, Ed. You know, the industrial production number came in at a contraction of 0.6% on a month over month basis. That's a triple threat below prior, uh, which was 0.4% positive, below consensus, which is 0.6% positive, and below the consensus range, which was from 0.1% to 1.1%. So really uh, not a great print. It's a fourth straight month uh, of decline in growth in industrial production, and uh, it's 7.1% below pre-pandemic levels in February of 2020. When you look at capacity utilization, which is a key metric uh, of the amount of capacity that's being utilized in the industrial economy, 30% uh, off from one from from full capacity today. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, l- let me rephrase something I said before. You're probably right, Ash. Actually, it was pretty a pretty catastrophic miss. As good as the retail sales numbers wa- were, yeah, th- that that triple threat that you mentioned, especially being outside the entire range of possibilities, that's yeah. a pretty big miss. And it's so you know, this is really the challenge of of what we do and what makes it so interesting is you have numbers that come out in the same day that show consumption uh, very strong, and then conversely, you have numbers that show production is very weak. And as I said earlier, uh, while the ultimate driver of production is consumption, it is a feedback loop where there are two nodes in that network that uh, that key off each other. Obviously, if your income is generated by production, if you're someone who's employed uh, working on a factory floor or in some part of that supply chain. Uh, and you lose your job or your hours get cut back, it limits your ability to consume goods and services. So it's all part of that endogenous cycle. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the jury is still out on how self-sustaining this uh, this cycle is. But at a minimum, in terms of uh, self-sustaining, I think that the Rosenberg uh, piece that he put out this morning for his uh, breakfast with Dave is where the rubber hits the road. He's basically saying that this isn't a recovery that we're in. People like myself 
uh, who have been saying that we've been in a recovery since June, a statistical recovery. He's saying, actually, no, uh, we haven't been because actually the government has been supporting the economy so much that we don't have organic growth in a, in a natural way. And the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is the dating committee uh, that decides when recessions happen, they're not going to be fooled by uh, this this uh, this absolute torrent of money that is going from the government into the private sector. Actually, I saw today that the uh, deficit came out for uh, fiscal year 2019 that goes through 2020. It came out at 3.1 trillion dollars. Uh, you know, the biggest deficit in percentage terms of GDP since World War II. Yeah. You know, and to follow up on that point, I, to quote credit write downs, where you talk about that, and then you kind of square the circle, I think, between your view and and David Rosenberg's view. So you say, quote, so what Dave is stressing is that it's only government largesse keeping afloat the economy. There is no organic recovery. In fact, during the six hundred a week PUA period, government transfer payments caused incomes to actually rise despite tens of millions out of work. That's an enormous, make good from Uncle Sam. And then the second paragraph, in truth, I don't think our macro, macro views are that dissimilar, even though I am calling the recession. I fully recognize that stimulus is keeping the economy afloat. But when I think back to 2009, I think of the fiscal stimulus then as having kept the economy afloat too. And the NBER still ended up dating the business cycle from mid-2009. Not an optimistic takeaway there, Ed. Well, no, you know, no, that is actually optimistic relative to what uh, David Rosenberg is saying. I think uh, the way that I would parse it is when I said the make good, even though I used the word stimulus, really, you know, in line with what uh, David Rosenberg is saying, that there's such a massive hole. It's not really stimulus per se. Uh, uh, to a certain degree, it's just a make good. Uh, except to the degree that it's in excess of what we had before. And, and that's what he's talking about. But in 2009, the stock market bottomed in March. The NBR said that the economy bottomed in June and uh, unemployment kept on going up through October. So if uh, we had a stimulus bill from the Obama administration and that was what's causing the turnaround. It still was a sustainable turnaround that, that happened. And subsequently, this was like in uh, August or September of 2010, the NBER dating committee came out and said, OK, June 2009 is the date. So even though it's artificial uh, right. in the sense that it's not organic, it's, it's uh, government stimulus led, it still is the date that could happen. So I'm I'm thinking that there's still uh, scenarios out there in which we're in a self-sustained recovery from here, even though it began as a result of massive amounts of government largesse to the degree that we had $3.1 trillion in deficit for fiscal year 2019. Yeah. And even after listening to the explanation of the explanation, I still don't hear a whole lot to be optimistic about. Maybe it's degrees <laughs> of optimism we're debating, those gradations of optimism. Yes. So, you know, um, to, to, to uh, tie that in to uh, another subject, I actually, let me, I can make a clean cut and then go to another subject and then we can tie it in at the end. Jens Nordvig, uh, who was a, a former Goldman guy, as I was telling you, he's at ex-ante now. Uh, he, 
he was responding to something that Adam Tooze put out. This was a uh, Adam Tooze. He was on our platform maybe two or three months ago, and he was talking about Sweden. Uh, he had a chart where he was showing, you know, deaths uh, and then also um, GDP uh, declines. And Sweden looked particularly bad from the death part. Their GDP didn't decline as much. Uh, and Jens Nordvig made an interesting uh, point. His point was, actually, if you look at Sweden, it's really a two-part uh, thing. That is, is during the initial phases of the pandemic, Sweden did a terrible job. Uh, their approach to uh, just keeping everything open ended up in uh, massive death. Whereas since April, Sweden's done really well. Not only have they done well from an economic perspective, but also in terms of their COVID-19 case count and uh, mortality rates associated with that. They've done really well compared to other countries around the world, even though uh, they haven't ever locked down and they don't have the mandatory uh, social distancing protocols that are as severe as other countries. I thought that that was a very interesting point that he made. And I think that it could have an impact as we go into the second wave. Yeah. Let me quote Ed Harrison quoting Ed Harrison. Where the first and second part of this post come together is in this self-quote from April 24th credit write-downs. Quote, the latest I am hearing on the coronavirus front is that irrespective of a lockdown relaxation-induced wave, we should expect a fall or flu season recurrence of this virus. And that means we either get better prepared now or risk death and shutdown again this fall in winter of 2021. To me, that speaks to the likelihood of a longer-term impact of the pandemic on social patterns and economic activity. And therefore, it points to the stronger possibility of L-shaped outcomes. And then you jump back here, this is from today. The fall winter wave I mentioned six months ago is happening now. And what that tells you is that it was entirely foreseeable, since even I told you six months ago it was likely to happen. But what was also foreseeable is that countries would be caught out again. And so that raises the possibility of negative economic outcomes as governments scramble to react and the economy takes a beating. How will Sweden fare? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that there's some drinking words in there, by the way, because you mentioned credit write-downs a few times. And, you know, the people who are playing the credit write-downs drinking game, they should be drinking a lot right now. You know, it is Friday afternoon, so, I mean, these guys are just getting drunk left and right. But After six on Friday, I hope we're <laughs> helping. <laughs> and, you know, but see, the thing is, is that uh, what I'm, I'm basically saying is in April of this year, I was telling you, uh, the, the guys, they were telling us that this wave that's actually happening right now is going to happen. It, yeah. It's not a, uh, it didn't come out of nowhere, the, the second wave. I, 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 even I said it, I'm not an epidemiologist. So it tells you that bad things were going to happen. Um, and I think that, you know, the downside risk is there. But I would just go back and I'd focus on Sweden for a second there, because they're, they're still uh, not locked down. They're not looking like they're going to lock down they have what I would consider the outcome that we all want to have. Um, that is a steady state that is uh, doable over the longer period of time. I would make the, the contentious claim, and um, it, I, I fully admit it's contentious, that 
the protocols that we have for uh, COVID-19 are unsustainable over the long term. One of the reasons that we're seeing so much uh, flouting of the rules is because people, they, they can't take it anymore. Sweden is operating in a different paradigm, and I think that that's a paradigm that is more sustainable, and we're going to see outperformance in Sweden as a result of that. That's my contentious statement. So that's that's where I was asking at the end about Sweden. Uh, but let me go a, a step further than that and talk about some other countries. You know, if you look at uh, Italy as an example, uh, there was a chart by Jim Reed of Deutsche Bank, and he showed what percentage of GDP uh, we had in fiscal stimulus this year uh, for various countries. Italy, because they were one of the first to shut down and, and they shut down entirely, the number was uh, approaching 40%. So Italy is now talking about localized shutdowns for the second wave. And here's a country that has uh, government debt to GDP well in excess of 150%. How are they going to get through this crisis and get to the other side without the bond vigilantes getting on top of them when they have already increased uh, government spending by 40% of debt to GDP, and then they're going to go and take another crack at it. And they're not even a, a currency issuer. They're a currency using country of, of the euro. It's not like they have a central bank, the Bank of Italy, which can go out and print uh, lira. So I, I look at that as a big problem for the eurozone, and it's something that we should be thinking about as we look forward in Europe. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. You know, the one thing that I can say for certain about these decisions is that I'm thrilled that I don't have to be the one making them. You're talking about the balance between potentially risking people's lives on the one hand and on the other, uh, condemning economies uh, to live under direst poverty. It is an impossible choice. Uh, and the data are always backward looking. There's no way to know where this is going to land uh, ahead of time. And you know, we have some divergent models. It's interesting. Uh, my Swedish friend tells me that Sweden is like a, a totally different country. People are out at cafes. They're having dinner without masks on. Uh, and, you know, it it, it sounds uh, to people who lived in New York, which was obviously very hard hit by this crisis, it's hard to imagine that taking place. But we may, at, to exactly your point, we don't know. There are not yet clear answers on which model works. There's the risk of the, of the sort of uh, rebound effect uh, or the... Uh, paradoxical effect of people feeling as though uh, they're locked in too tight and swinging in the opposite direction. And there's also the risk of these rolling phases that don't come to a steady state. And the other question that we should throw in there uh, is the unknown about herd immunity. Right. Yeah. I mean, all of those things come together. And I think that really, at the end of the day, uh, we've done a poor job in uh, engaging how we look at this from a long-term perspective. So you right. talk about vaccines, uh, you talk about, uh, you know, uh, social distancing protocols, et cetera. Really, what we should be thinking is 2021, 2022, maybe 2023. Who knows? But whatever you do, it has to be thinking over that longer term period of time. How, how right. sustainable is what we're doing now? 
and how can we make it so it's a steady state as possible? The last thing that people are willing to put up with is, you know, going from uh, open to close, open to close, open to close over and over again. That's just not an effective uh, way to deal with it. That's why I, I, I think that, you know, uh, Sweden is some is a country that we should be thinking about uh, as uh, an outlier in a positive way now, as opposed right. to the negative way uh, when the uh, when we first had the first wave. Yeah. So, Ed, with all these unknown unknowns and we can you know, second guess uh, for, for uh, you know, to our heart's content. The question really is, how do you act in this era of great uncertainty. How do you think about this with regard to your uh, to to the investment thesis or framework? Well, you know, I think there are two uh, outcomes. Uh, one, I think, is that uh, companies that are potentially more uh, f- uh, domestically focused in Sweden might be interesting to take a look at because you know Sweden, uh, relative to GDP, their companies have uh, a very export orientation, so they're going to take it on the chin, irrespective of what happens in their country. Second right. thing is, is I think that you got to look at uh, 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 potential, I would call uh, divergence. You know, so we've seen Italy converge to the rest of Europe. Uh, in the eurozone because they've got the backstop of the ECB, uh, you can get a Italian 10-year for about the same as you can get a U.S. 10-year. I think that convergence is over. Soon that convergence will go in the other direction. And so I'd be very concerned about being overexposed to uh, Italian government paper, uh, even if it's picking you up 77 basis points. Actually, it's probably picking you up like 150 basis points. But that spread is going to increase over time. Yeah. I'm not sure the spread being that low ever made sense. And it's hard to uh, it's hard to understand how it does today. Yeah, especially given that on the other side of this, we're, we're looking at a, an economy that probably will have 180, 200 percent debt to GDP. Uh, I think it's going to be impossible in a a go forward, a steady state go forward uh, place to monetize that amount of debt uh, for the ECB to be able to do that without some sort of hiccups uh, from a policy perspective or from the bond vigilantes just like like sending those yields up higher. At the end of the day, even if you got a vaccine and everyone uh, bought into the vaccine and, uh, you know, we went back to normal in June of 2021 you're still at 180% debt to GDP in Italy. That's where Greece was in 2012. Don't tell me that that's not a problem. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, so, on a slightly uh, brighter note, Ed, uh, here yeah. in New York, big flash alert yesterday, the uh, City Council and Fire Department of New York City approved outdoor space heaters, gas, electric, and propane, so you can go out and have a lovely dinner in the January snowfall. And if you can suck back uh, two or three bottles of wine uh, and huddle up close to a propane space heater, uh, you know, maybe you won't get hypothermia. There you go. I like it. You know, my, my wife was talking to me about that, how we should we should invest in one before, uh, you know, the, the cupboards are, are bare at, at the local Costco or wherever it is that she thinks that we're going to get one of these. But, we, you know, we have one of these fire pits, actually, where you can put uh, wood into that. We, that's another thing that we could use as well. So we don't even need to go to the restaurants. We could uh, freeze at our own house. So once the hypothermia comes into play, we can move indoors straight away. That's the height of convenience, Ed. Hypothermia at home. 
<laughs> so, you know, Ash, there are one or two other things that uh, before we, we uh, top it off that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if we want to talk about the banks at all or not. But uh, one thing that uh, because I just saw actually, let's talk about the banks for one second. Uh, you saw the thing on Warren Buffett that he's dumping Wells Fargo. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, and we, we're getting we're getting a better picture of what's happening with the banks now. You know, the investment banks are doing well. Uh, the uh, less investment bank oriented companies are doing less well. But Warren Buffett is is moving from Wells Fargo to Bank of America. So that's an interesting call on his part. He's not moving into Goldman Sachs or into Morgan Stanley. He's going from one retail to uh, another retail, but less retail oriented company. Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, some of that, uh, I guess the debate now is around to how much of that was just the the personal slight of Warren Buffett very rarely uh, asks for things from the companies that he invests in. Uh, and his one request was don't hire uh, a Wall Street CEO to be the next CEO of Wells Fargo. Wells did, in fact, hire a Wall Street CEO. He's been a huge supporter of this bank for a very long time. Uh, and now it seems as though he's transitioning away. His stake has dropped dramatically. Yeah, I, I think it's something that we should keep an eye on in terms of thinking about banks, in terms of relative performance. You know, we, we talk about the regional banks versus the big banks, but there's also obviously the uh, sales and trading slash uh, you know, uh, markets-oriented finance institutions versus the more retail-oriented uh, institutions. He said, Warren Buffett is saying specifically, I don't want Wall Street-style uh, leadership at uh, the bank that I'm heavily invested in. If he's yeah. saying that, then th to me, that's a marker that he's putting down, saying that I don't care how well JPM and Goldman Sachs are doing now, that's not where I want to weight my assets at this part in the business cycle. So I think that we should really take that as a note just from a value investing perspective. And what does that note tell you? What's the broader lesson from a, from a sector perspective or from a, uh, an investment thesis perspective that can be abstracted from it? Yeah, I think that it's saying that this cycle's not over, you know, uh, that the Goldmans are, are doing well now, but if he's not interested in getting into that space at this particular juncture, it would suggest that he thinks that there's more downside risk in that. It, I mean, it could be that the downside risk is over the full course of a business cycle, but I'm suspecting that he's th thinking not just over the course of the business cycle, but at this specific moment, I'm much more uh, willing to load up on uh, Bank of America, which does have a you know a wide spectrum, including Merrill Lynch, uh, 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 of assets, but I'm not willing to move further down the line toward uh, the likes of Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. It's certainly an intriguing thought. Yeah, so um, I think it, for me it's a uh, you know it's a worrying sign, and uh, and so I think it's just something to to look for to see how he positions it going forward, why he's getting out of Wells and why he's there building up a position in Bank of America at the same time. Yeah. 
Ed, we were talking offline on a slightly different note about some of the curation techniques that we're using at Real Vision to uh, try and make the content a little bit easier to consume uh, for our subscribers. I know that you and I have talked about this uh, ourselves, about you know the fact that we've dramatically ramped up content at Real Vision to try and cover uh, a series of different areas and do it well. Uh, and now the, the challenge is how do we consume all of that? So I'll let you talk to that point. Yeah, I mean, just very briefly, this is the last thing that I had wanted to say before we got into the banks. Um, I had wanted to say that, you know, we did this AMA this time last week, and that came out on Monday, you and I, and we asked people for some comments about this, the uh, embarrassment of riches uh, and, uh, you know, if it, it, how they felt about it. And I think the biggest takeaway was that at a minimum, something that you could do straight away is you could make it so that it's easier for me to digest. You know, one digestible nugget that we have is Real Vision Daily Briefing, what we're doing right now. Another is the ability to curate content in a way saying like, look, you know, we're Real Vision uh, users as well, you and I and the rest of the editorial team. Why don't we put together a list of, because we see everything uh, since we're doing the editorial for it, of what we think are the best videos for the past week, the past uh, four weeks. Um, and so that's what we've done. We're not looking at the most recent content per se, but it's the it's the uh, content that's um, less th uh, than a month old and up to the, the most recent week. And so you'll see the best stuff uh, from our perspective in that time frame. Yeah, hardest part of that process is picking the, uh, what is it, eight videos for that slider. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that because there's so many different things. And so we just have a voting process and then, you know, let the best videos win, if you will. Ed, speaking of voting process, I'm going to leave you on this note. If you haven't seen uh, my interview with uh, Sergey Nazarov, the man behind Chainlink, really fascinating stuff. Excellent. Yeah. So maybe that will uh, push out the, uh, the the number one video in that uh, that uh, carousel, which is uh, Brian Estes, which I actually liked a lot. Uh, we'll see. I haven't looked. I haven't actually seen that video that you do. So I, I'm interested to check it out. Yeah, it's uh, for people who aren't uh, following the crypto spaces closely. Uh, basically, what this technology does is uh, it links smart contracts, which are the uh, the business logic that allows you to execute uh, pr uh, contracts programmatically on the blockchain. It links those smart contracts up with events in the real world. So if you and I are betting on a Yankees-Red Sox game, uh, basically, Sergey's Oracle goes out and finds a secure, reliable way of checking that score uh, in a way that's robust enough to use that to transact uh, with actual money contracts on the internet. It's really interesting and I think fascinating technology. There you go. And also for me, interesting because it's not about uh, Bitcoin as uh, or uh, the, you know, uh, the blockchain as an asset, but rather other utilization of the blockchain. Yeah, absolutely. It's about the transactional aspect uh, of how blockchain is going to become increasingly a, a more prominent um, part of our financial system. So with that, uh, one more a mention of uh, credit write-downs uh, so that people can have a, a swig before they go. And uh, that's all from me. Do a shot. Ed, thanks for joining <laughs> us. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend, everybody. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.